Welcome to the Immigrant Finance Podcast, a show dedicated to everything money, online business, and immigration, because immigrant families deserve to build generational wealth too. I'm your host, Adina, social entrepreneur, immigration attorney, and financial educator and coach for immigrant families. I created the Immigrant Finance Platform with my husband, Mauricio, who immigrated to the U.S. eight years ago after we struggled through the whole process of trying to figure out finances as an immigrant family alone. We wanted to share what we learned about building wealth with others along the way and created the Immigrant Finance School Group Coaching Program where we teach immigrants and their families like you how to manage their money, get started investing, and build online businesses in just weeks, all with group accountability and support. Our clients have been able to get started investing and develop lifelong plans to build generational wealth regardless of their immigration status actually launched an online business they've been dreaming of starting for years, bring in enough income to leave a job with a shitty boss, and book up their calendar for the rest of the month just after announcing their new coaching business. I'm coming to you with a new show several times a week with stories about online business lessons, money and mindset insights, and guest interviews to help you become financially empowered. Each episode will switch between personal finance and online business topics. Now let's get to this week's episode. I am here today um, with Erica Johnson, who I'm super excited to introduce to all of you. She has a very exciting story about entrepreneurship and business, lots of business lessons she'll be sharing with us today. Um, I actually met Erica recently through my best friend from college, um, who I love very much, and um, they are close friends. So lot of mutual love over here and I got to connect with Erica and learn about um, a bit of her background that she'll be sharing with us today. So just a quick intro about Erica Johnson. So she is a co-founder of Crunchbase's number one hottest startup in the world for 2019. She made the exclusive Fortune 40 under 40 list and she advises and mentors top up and coming companies across the United States um, she's also co-founded the John and Erica Gerson Foundation. So Erica, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Did I um, did I hit on, on the right stuff? Anything you want to add about your background before we jump in? No, I think you covered it all. But um, in actuality, I started out in academia at the inter- intersection of neurobehavioral research and technology. So of 10 plus years in doing a lot of academic research. Wow. Yeah. You're about, your story is just amazing and all of your experience. So, um, and the fact you bring that to entrepreneurship is really unique, I think. Um, so before we started recording, we were just starting to chit chat and we were talking a little bit about like the entrepreneurial spirit and just jumping in and starting things, even when you're scared, uh, when we realize we have that in common, we were talking about it with starting the podcast. Um, yeah. So anything you kind of want to tell people about that topic? <laughs> yeah, we were both just uh, finding similarity in, you know, anything cool that we've done in our life. It's also because we've been scared to do it. So I was sharing with you that 
I had a fear of swimming. So I decided to join the Cal triathlon team after taking swimming lessons on my own for a year. You know, I was very scared of heights. My first time climbing a wall, you know, I was teary eyed and had Elvis leg syndrome. So I eventually took up rock climbing and outdoor rock climbing, was scared of starting a company, but took a leap of faith and got into Y Combinator. And that's where I met your best friend from college, Amy, um, and started and launched a company from there. What about you, Adina? Incredible. Yeah, I've I've had similar experiences. I, I was just telling you, I feel like anything somewhat cool I've been able to do in my life has just been because I've been like, that sounds awesome. And I'm terrified of doing that. And I could never do it. So like, oh, shit, let's just try, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, see what happens, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it's important for people to know that because um, they're it, entrepreneurs do stuff scared all the time. Like you think they seem like they know what they're doing, but often it's just being courageous, right? Yeah. I mean, I think being on the other side, you realize and take a look around and Michelle Obama talks about this on her podcast. You look around and no one really knows what they're doing. Everyone's just figuring it out in real time. I think the difference is just taking that leap and not being afraid to try. Such an important message um, for our community. We have so many really brilliant, interesting people um, in our community that have a lot to contribute to the world. And they're often like the first in their family to be thinking about being a business owner or having an online business. So what um, in that spirit, what would you kind of tell them? Like just get started or? Well, I would say yes, get started. But um, it's really important to surround yourself with Uh, mentors who are one or two steps ahead of you. Um, So it's great when you can take the advice of one or two people and incorporate that with your own gut level of common sense and the own research and work that you've put into it. I think when I was starting my company, um, I was getting feedback left and right from all sorts of people. You know, everyone wants to offer their feedback. Um, But at the end of the day, it's really important to just pick one or two, maybe three Mm -hmm. mentors that you can reliably trust when it comes to certain domains. I love that. Is it because otherwise it can get overwhelming? Yeah, it's the paradox of choice. Um, Mm -hmm. You're not able to move efficiently and effectively because part of entrepreneurship is also moving fast. You want to make mistakes early on so that you can iterate and learn from those mistakes. Okay. That's really valuable to hear. Yeah. And and it's part of the process. Like you can only really make success if you let yourself fail and learn, right? 100%. Yeah. And I know in San Francisco tech world, it, that's like very widely accepted, but can you talk a little bit about what this means iteration? Cause I think for some other people, it may be new. Ah, the idea of iterating is just trying something, seeing it, if it works, what, what sticks, what doesn't, you know, it's better to have 10 people really love and resonate with your product or what you're saying in a podcast than just have 100 people sort of meh, sort of like you a little Mm -hmm. bit, you know? Um, So that's an important signal to listen to. And as much as you can pay attention to that signal and continue to rinse and repeat and adjust your message or your product so that you are really truly building something that provides value to people, um, that usually goes hand in hand with monetary value. Mm -hmm. Um, 
absolutely money for your business. Yeah, I love that. And and I wanted to touch on something else you said earlier too that was really important of like listening to your gut you alluded to even when you're getting a lot of feedback. That is so important to to be in touch with your instinct and and trust that more and more as you grow a business. Um, because you're going to get all kinds of opinions, right? So how has that been experience been for you as an entrepreneur? Well, it's been interesting because a lot of people ask me, like, how did you make that jump from academia, you know, doing research and building neurobehavioral health tools um, to building your own company? And I tell people the two aren't actually too dissimilar. You actually get a little bit of money in research and then you build out a proof of concept. Um, in entrepreneurship, they call it a minimum viable product and MVP. And then you test out that product idea or that research idea, gain a little more traction um, until you could hire and build out a team, get more money. The two are very similar paths. So um, there's a good balance between, you know, paying attention to data, paying attention to what the research is telling you, but also listening to your own gut intuition with design or the business model or um, how you want the strategy of the business to go. Because ultimately, your your unique experience and your unique uh, work challenges that you've faced throughout your career has set you up for your own unique insights for what you will mm-hmm. build. So that shouldn't be discounted. I know I know Silicon Valley is very data driven, like listen to the data, but I like to leave a little room for gut intuition. I totally agree. I the more and more um I learn about intuition and instinct, the more I'm like, I just have to find a way to listen to this all the time. <laughs> you know, with data, you know, with information, of course, but sometimes it's really just about your instinct knows what's best in, in business and life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's already been not even 10 minutes and you've provided such valuable information <laughs> and insights. Um, so thank you so much for all that already. And let's jump in now to talking about the immigration story of, of your family. And I, I believe um, you're going to speak about your mother's immigration experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, my mom is one of my favorite people in the world. And I actually gave her a call before hopping on a call with you, Adina, because um, I just wanted mm-hmm. to make sure that I had her immigration story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned a couple of new things myself. So my mom is the first of nine kids to come to the United States. Uh, she immigrated here in 1969 from Vietnam. So she was 21 when she came to the U.S. and She came here for college, got a degree from SUNY Buffalo in New York, then went to grad school and got her MBA in international finance at SUNY Binghamton. Um, But then in 1975, uh, you know, Vietnam was lost to the communists and her house, her family's house was bombed two times. Um, So the rest of her family actually had to immigrate to the United States. So she calls them, quote unquote, boat people. Uh, So the rest of her family, eight other siblings, um, her mom, uh, two husbands and two kids, you know, essentially came here on a barge hauled by the U.S. Navy to Guam to the United States. Uh, So she was their sponsor. And then everyone was living in Rochester, New York. 
<laughs> so that's 14 people in two two-bedroom apartments. Oh my God. Um, and they started with nothing, right? They worked as chambermaids, dishwashers, et cetera, in New York. Um, and then just through saving, because that's what you're taught as an immigrant, you save, you work hard, you are positive, and then you eventually invest. And this is why I really feel like America has been the land of opportunity, at least for my mom's side of the family, because we have entrepreneurs on her side of the family now. One one auntie who didn't even graduate college, she opened up a warehouse, um, a food manufacturing warehouse and opened up her restaurant, became the first self-made millionaire in the, in the family. Another uncle works in the travel industry. Um, we have two doctors, a psychiatrist and an internal medicine doctors who now own their own private practices and are retiring. So really started here with nothing like the TLDR is their home was bombed by communists twice and they all came here to America and started with nothing and made worked their way up. Incredible. Wow. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, okay. That, thank you for sharing her story and just what a brave family. Um, you know, as an immigration lawyer, we, we learn about like the, the boat lift, they refer to it. Yeah of refugees from Vietnam. So um, just to hear her personal experience in, in that like massive lift of people is really amazing to, to hear um, what came of her family through that decision. Yeah. Wow. Um, so it'd be great to hear next about your experience becoming an entrepreneur, you know, after your family came here and, and had this entrepreneurial spirit that you described several people going down that direction. Um, how did that extend to you and what's been your experience? Yeah, it's interesting because I was listening to a couple of earlier episodes of your podcast and similar to you, Adina, um, I was very fulfilled doing mission driven work. You know, I was working at the intersection between brain health and technology at places like the UC Berkeley Helen Willis Neuroscience Institute and UCSF Sandler Neurosciences. So it's a field called translational neuroscience, but basically what we're doing is just building brain health tools and using software. But the pay was not amazing. <laughs> Given where I was at though, I was so fulfilled and I was ready to dedicate my life to improving human health and research. So a salary of 40 to 50K actually seemed very livable. If I were to just save for myself and forego thinking about ever owning a house in San Francisco and ever consider having children, I was very, very fulfilled. And actually, that's what I did for close to a decade. Um, however, <laughs> I don't know what changed, but a light switch went off and I realized, wow, I think I do want a partnership. I do want to eventually have children. I've never been a woman who dreamt about getting married, dreamt about having kids. And actually I thought there was something wrong with me because that was never something that I wanted until a few years ago. So um, luckily both my parents are accountants. So they taught me to live frugally and they taught me to live below my means. So I never actually felt poor because I was putting money into retirement, putting money into savings and really living below my means. But I had a renewed sense of urgency because I did have something new that I valued in my life, and that was putting away money for posterity. So I immediately needed to advocate for a higher salary. Um, I realized I had been underpaid for a number of years, 
And I realized um, even advocating for a higher salary, a software engineering salary at my next job, six figures, this is not enough to make up for lost time. And by this time, I was already 30. So one of the best kept secrets in Silicon Valley and one of the lessons I learned late in life was most of the wealth generated is actually not through your salary. People talk about savings. People talk about investing, but it's through equity that you truly make intergenerational wealth. I mean, you hear about these IPOs with um, Airbnb and DoorDash, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so I had to take a leap of faith and really launch a company, um, went through Y Combinator, the accelerator. And, um, during that time launched a survey asking millennials what they wanted in a modern mental health benefit. And this was the idea that we were, we would eventually bring to selling to different enterprise corporations. Um, much to my surprise though, folks, who are responding to early user research, and this is the formation of the company, Modern Health, um, folks answered that they wanted assistance in career coaching, mindfulness and meditation coaching. So it wasn't traditional therapy that they wanted direct access mm -hmm. to, but a broader menu of items. And I was very surprised to learn that a lot of millennials were really interested in financial well-being, and that was directly impacting their mental health. Um, mm -hmm. so it was after doing this re user research that I launched the holistic platform to help companies connect their employees to the appropriate mental health resource. Um, and so that was the launch of modern health. Wow. Um, so incredible such this story. And I love that you followed the, the, what the market was telling you instead of, saying like, this is what I believe people need. You did the, the research and designed it based on the feedback you got. So that's another really good lesson too for business owners of just like listening to the market. Yeah. And I tell folks this all the time. You can do it really cheaply because it's not like I had too much money to start with in launching this company. I had savings for about three to six months, but it really was a leap of faith. And um you can really grow back simple surveys. If it truly only takes one to two minutes of someone's time, you can post on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter, et cetera. And you could gather a lot of wonderful, rich information about what people really want to be able to mm -hmm. deliver services that they're interested in. Um, of course, it's not a random sample and we're talking about just folks in your network. So it's a majority of Silicon Valley. Um, but it's quick and it's very cheap and you can get a lot of information really quickly. Did you just use like Google survey or what survey monkey, what platform? Yeah. Google survey, a Google form. Okay. So that's, <laughs> that's free that people can use and start yeah. doing their, their own online business ideas or whatever kind of business. You can get a lot of, a lot done just using Google Sheets, Google Forms. You know, some of the earliest MVPs for businesses are just all started on G Suite. Wow. So cool. <laughs> um, what did you learn next in your business? As, as so you got it started, you, you were able to figure out what the market really wanted and build a company around that. Um, how, what was sort of the next level for your growth as an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's tough because I think... 
I think it's really difficult being the daughter of an immigrant because I was raised with certain values like um, humility is something we really value and living below your means. Um, that's something we really, really value. But sometimes those values are at direct odds with running a venture backed company. And um, in order to validate your need for more capital, like with a series A or series B to fuel growth, you have to prove that you know how to spend that money. So it's a weird juxtaposition because I think as a woman founder, um, I want to be humble and embrace the values that I was taught by my mom and my dad. However, um, you do need to present a certain level of badassery and just like own mm -hmm. all the merits that have gotten you to a place. And then at the same time, you can't be penny wise and pound foolish. Like you need to spend money on your employees, giving them good salaries so they don't have financial stress providing food and perks and benefits so that they feel taken care of. Um, so I had to learn not to penny pinch as much in the early days because um, I still had that frugality mindset. Mm -hmm. And I think the third thing I would say, you know, um, working on promoting yourself a little bit more and the second thing being uh, not being penny wise and pound foolish the third thing is like scaling yourself. I think I took a lot of value in just direct IC, individual contributor work. Um, there's a lot of pride in just being able to do it yourself, but you will reach a critical point where you do need to start working on scaling yourself as a founder and hiring folks to delegate work to. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely I'm I'm learning similar lessons, um, particularly this idea of needing to invest in your business in order for it to be successful and grow. And I had a similar experience of um, being very frugal, a very frugal person, particularly um, <laughs> in my journey of personal finance, like having to become very frugal to get a handle on things. And it's like the, like you said, it's kind of the opposite, what you need to do with the business and growing it. Um, so I've, I learned the hard lesson this past year that only with really investing in the business, would it grow and start to make more money? And that, that was certainly my experience that made the difference. Yeah. Ultimately, your time is the most valuable resource, especially once you've reached an inflection point with the business, whether that's product market fit or you've gone to a good place of generating enough revenue. It's thinking about how do you scale it, you know, and scale might not be something that everyone wants. Right. So I'm talking about the scenario where you do want to scale an operation. Mm -hmm. um, and that means scaling yourself as a founder and making sure that your time is being spent in the right ways. Absolutely. And being like working um, smarter, right? Not necessarily more. And like you yeah. said, your time is, is spent on the right things because you can fill your whole day doing all of this admin stuff that needs to be done, but that is probably not going to be bringing in money <laughs> for the business. Yeah. Right. So like learning to delegate. Um, I know that's something this year I'm probably going to have to figure out is hiring our first virtual assistant is something that I know um, will have to happen because it's just going to get to a point with the admin that's too much for us to handle. 
That's so, super yeah. exciting. That's super exciting though, because then your time can be better spent doing other things as well. Having more guests yeah. on your podcast, et cetera. Totally. Not to mention your mom and you have a day job as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But it's scary. Like when we're hardwired, you know, you're a child of immigrants. Um, um, now my husband's an immigrant. My my family is originally like refugee, Jewish refugee family that ha- was very, very frugal to survive for a long time. It's like, right. It goes against everything you've been taught to, to spend more, to make more. <laughs> um, yeah. It's really, really counterintuitive. Um, for a lot of a lot of us um, in general, and particularly people in this community, you know, who are new business owners. Um, so, how did you kind of men- money mindset wise come around to that? How to spend money to make money? For me, it was working at the unit economics of time and the ROI. So, honestly, it was a quantitative approach. It's not sexy or glamorous. Um, but it was honestly just a quantitative approach to just thinking, okay, this is how much my time is worth. And okay, this on the surface level seems like I'm spending a lot per employee, but you know, the more you invest in your own employees, um, the more you invest in your business, the better the returns. Mm -hmm. And do you mind explaining what ROI is for the audience? Ah, okay. Uh, The return on investment. So say you're thinking about, hey, should I spend $50,000 on um, providing office lunch to employees, you know, three to five times a week Um, and just balancing out, okay, I'm injecting this much money. Um, I'm going to be spending $50,000, but what is the value of, you know, not having the employees worry about packing lunch and packing, making dinner the night before the financial stress of having to buy groceries or the time needed to um, go out to buy something at lunch the next day. Um, It just adds up to a lot more. And so it makes sense to just spend a little to yeah. make more in the long run. Yeah, it's that, like oh, that was a terrible time. way of explaining ROI. No, no, that was great. It's so to just kind of paraphrase my understanding how you explain it. It's really to um, think about all the money you'll be saving um, from your employees not have to spend that time worrying about lunch and and worrying about the finances and preparing and the time to get it. And instead, they can contribute that to their work, which is probably going to bring in a whole of a lot more money for the business than $50,000. Yeah, that's one way of thinking about it. Um, you know, I think ultimately, it's making sure that people have options. They never feel like they never feel like they're in a bind. You know, I had one employee who joked with me saying like, Erica, you just want to provide lunch so that people stay and work more. <laughs> It's like, mm-hmm. no, I mean, there's ultimately, um, we want to provide you with options. Like you'll have mm-hmm. food ready for you. Should you want that, you know, and it's reducing stress overall as happier employees, you know, healthier company, it all goes hand in hand. So. Yeah. Not yeah, as that makes a lot of sense too. It's kind of, yeah. It's not just like capitalistic, like how I described it. It's like the in- intangible value of like your employees knowing they're cared for and maybe they choose to stay at, at that company because of that, you know, because of that feeling perhaps yeah. and leave. And Absolutely. like the, tra- 
the training costs to rehire someone, you know, are, are a lot. Um, I'm trying to think how we can apply this on to the level of someone who's, um, a, a brand new online business owner. So mm-hmm. one example I have to mind, I have in mind coming up that I'd love to hear your thoughts. This is just something I went through like last week, um, where, you know, I try to keep costs low. I try to keep the business lean. Um, and for a while in the beginning, like really tried to make sure all the software I was using was the free version or like <laughs> whatever, you know, and then I'm kind of at a point now where like there's, I'm trying to do more back end systems and automations. And there was a service I wanted to use that was something like $20 a month to use. And for a while I avoided it because I'm like, I don't want any subscriptions. I don't need, I don't want any monthly fees. But then I just realized that $20 a month is going to save me probably six hours of time a month, mm. which is completely worth it. You know, um, is that a kind of a way to apply that you think? That's a great way to apply it. Just thinking about the trade-off with time because mm-hmm. ultimately that's the currency. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and I think uh, what I talk about all the time with our community too is this is how wealth, wealthy people think in terms of like wanting to build wealth. It's realizing that trade-off um, and investing in yourself and your knowledge in your networks. Um, even if it's an, a cost up front in the long run, if it can help you change your beliefs or think differently or connect with people that can provide you opportunities, it's, it's worth it in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. They say like rich people have money and wealthy people have time. Mm, yeah. What does yeah. that mean to you? <laughs> um, so time provides you the option to do what you want. Like Bill Gates, for example, you know, he's extraordinarily wealthy. He's not just rich, he's wealthy and he can use his power, his influence, his money to actually enact more change. Um, and he can choose to spend his time however he wants. He's not a slave to money. Um, I do think that it is really interesting to think about time and how you're spending it in your business. Anything that can actually help you scale and help you gather more time. That's such an interesting resource to think about. Yeah, definitely. And now thinking about your experience with entrepreneurship and and starting your company, um, what does it mean to you to have done that as being the child of an immigrant? Um, I I chatted with my mom, like I said, right before coming on this call, and I asked her, you know, she and my dad, she they moved around the United States for ten years before settling in the San Francisco Bay Area, just because it's so culturally diverse here. Um, so in Chinese, uh, San Francisco is Jiu Jin Shan, Jin Shan meaning gold mountain. And her hope was that, you know, America's this land of opportunity. If you have the drive and the motivation, then every generation should have a better quality of life than the past generation. So she, she says that she definitely has a higher quality of life than my grandmother, Um, and she's really happy to see that my quality of life is already better than hers. So for her, it's very, very validating to know that she moved to a free democratic country 
where you put your nose to the grindstone, you work hard. And if you have the drive and the innovation, then you can build intergenerational wealth, even when you start here with zero dollars in your pocket. So it's incredibly exciting and it's incredibly validating. And um, I'm very proud to be her daughter and to have had the opportunity, you know. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Um, and I think it, it just reiterates um, this whole idea of the American dream. You know, it's it, it in many ways has become less available to many people over time. But there are so many people um, that prove it does exist when you are able to pursue and see opportunities like you have been. Mm. Um, so thank you just for being an example and, and sharing that with people. Oh, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, and, and just to wrap up, um, what is the number one lesson um, that you wish you had learned either about personal finances? Cause I know that's been part of your journey or um, just entrepreneurship and business that you really wish you had learned um, in the beginning of your journey. Yeah. I mean, being the daughter of two accountants, right. I feel like, I was taught to save and I was taught to invest, live below my means. That's all fine and well, you know, uh, table stakes. But I wish I sort of embraced the American idiom of the squeaky wheel gets the grease a lot earlier in life. Because in Chinese culture, there's a saying that the loudest duck gets shot. (laughs) Um, And what I mean by the squeaky wheel gets the grease, it's like, you can't expect anyone to advocate for you. So the burden of responsibility is on us to advocate for pay raises, for more equity, et cetera. Which brings me to my next point. I feel like there is a lot of opportunity. And if you have the appetite for risk to join an early stage startup in your 20s, to work there for a year, give it a try, that's some equity. Because, um, oh, sorry. Hello. Hi. My, head- my headphones just gave me an alert that my battery was low, but oh, you know, cool. if you have, if you have the opportunity to join an early stage company with 20 to 50 employees to get a significant slice of equity, um, advocate, advocate and negotiate um, because no one else is going to do it for you. So um, whenever I give talks to my female engineering network or the women in science, the STEM network, I tell them, if you ever need help negotiating, if you ever need help understanding your equity and your compensation package, please let me know and I will help you because um, most people just care about salary. And if you're being offered equity, I really think um, it's a disadvantage if you don't understand what that equity means, because it could mean, you know, hundreds of dollars to potentially millions yeah, I, I want to just touch on that because um, that may be a new concept for some people, this idea of equity. And, and you mentioned earlier that it's really that is the pathway for building intergenerational wealth compared to salary. So could you um, explain a little bit more, please, that equity concept? Yeah, you've probably heard of the stock market and companies um, going public where they're able to list their stock and it's publicly traded. So anyone can buy Amazon stock, for example. But in the early days before a company goes public, um, you can own a slice of the company. You can be a part owner in the company by having equity. Um, And depending on how much money the business brings in, that percentage will be worth 
a real amount of money based off of valuation after a series A, a series B, series C, et cetera. Um, it oftentimes can grow a lot faster than the stock market, which on average doubles every six and a half years. So it's just something worth taking a chance on, especially if you're young. And I tell a lot of folks in their twenties, like try working for a startup for a year. If you want to take a shot at building intergenerational wealth, um, it might pay off and it might not. If it doesn't, you'll learn a lot in the progress, Mm -hmm. in the process. That's really valuable advice. I think very unique from your perspective in the tech world. Um, So thank you so much for sharing all these incredible insights. Um, Are there any uh, platforms or websites, social media that you would want people to check out or or, um, connect, follow you? Yeah, you can feel free to follow me on Twitter. Um, It's just Erica Jerson, E-R-I-C-A-J-E-R-S-I-N, or on my LinkedIn. I think I still go by my maiden name, Erica T. Johnson, um, on LinkedIn. But if any of your listeners have questions about startups, entrepreneurship, they're thinking about starting their own company, or they're being offered equity, but they don't understand how to evaluate their compensation package, um, I'd be happy to help. Thank you, Erica. Thank you so much for your time and really, really important insights. We're so grateful. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Adina, for having me on. I'm a huge fan of the Immigrant Finance Podcast and what you're doing overall. Thank you. I, I look forward to staying in touch. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to the Immigrant Finance Show. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already and leave us a review so we can reach more people to help. Also, did you know we started a free Facebook group for immigrant families who want to build generational wealth? We're doing free monthly trainings covering everything from investing to online business. Plus, you will be in there with a network of other inspiring members of our community. Make sure to join us at facebook.com slash groups slash immigrant finance. And we'll see you there.